Welcome to the Love Fly podcast. It's Paul Tizard here. Now, today's episode features Melissa, who came on our webinar recently, and she's going to ask, bombard Captain Steve Ball with loads of questions. And we hope you enjoy it. Welcome. Captain Bull, how are you? Morning. Is it Boomer Hello. still? It... Hello. It's still Boomer, yeah. Do you want me to, I think, I, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You call yourself what you like. I think I know it now. I saw it on the show. <laughs> it, it was. I let you into the thing. It was named after a, a, a golfer, and I can't remember. It, he had the most strangest name. It was an American golfer, and it's just hilarious. Boomer something. And uh, I thought, that's it. I want to be called, I want to be called Boomer, not Boomer. <laughs> So well, I've my just... name's very boring. It's just my normal name. Yeah, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I've got nothing special going on. <laughs> so I've, I've renamed you Brigadier Ball, okay? Oh, Brigadier, fantastic. Yeah, is that all right? Just, promotion. You know, just get a little promotion. promotion there. Admiral. Yeah, could have joined the Army or the Navy. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> lucky escape, I think. So we're, I think we're going to go quite quickly. I'm just going to ask Melissa sort of very quickly her kind of story, and then uh, then she's going to just bombard you with questions, if that's all right. That's absolutely right. Can the dog answer as well? <laughs> <laughs> if you like. Yeah. Um, oh. really? uh, he's a bit uh, big for yeah. R, actually, isn't he? Yeah, I know. I've got oh, a dog done. too, but she's downstairs. I'm making, oh, my, really? oh, I'm making oh. my whole family go out, so it's not too much noise. Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> I think he's had his breakfast, so I should be I should be safe. Yeah, he won't be barking. <laughs> yeah. So let's do the official stuff then, and then we'll just get into it, that's all right. But thanks both to, to both of you, to because uh, this will be a fun podcast, I think. And yeah, I think the last time we did this was with Michael Talone, and it it was very popular because people were thinking, yeah, I want to know the answer to that. So you've it's one got one of my hopefully... favourite podcasts, actually. Oh, brilliant. Oh, is it? Oh, oh, right. Let's do it then. So uh, welcome <laughs> to the Love Fly podcast. This is Paul Tizard. And with me today, I've got Melissa and Captain Bull. And now Melissa came on our webinar a little while ago. And then we had this thought. She had a lot of questions, which were great, didn't you? And so we thought, let's get the two of them together and do a session where Melissa kind of bombards Captain Steve and sees if she can catch him out. Um, or maybe he'll come up with some wisdom, you know, who knows. But uh, Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's so, to be here. No, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for your time. Tell us a little bit. Just give us a kind of potted history of how you've ended up being a kind of a person beating their fear of flying. Yeah, sure. It's hard for me to summarise it quickly because it, I've had it for most of my life. So mm. I travelled a lot when I was young because I was living in Canada with a British mother and Canadian father. So we did a lot of transatlantic travel, two planes every trip. But for as long as I can remember, I didn't like the takeoff. And um, when I was about eight, I remember looking out the window and thinking that the wing was falling off because of the flaps. And um, nobody really ever explained to me how they worked at the time. Yeah. So I guess that yeah. just took hold. And mm. I was quite embarrassed because... Um, you know, everyone's looking at me and yeah, um, yeah, I still remember that. But anyway, so we did all that and I remained just nervous on the takeoff, not any other bits of it. But um, when I was 15, I moved to the UK. So my transatlantic travel stopped 
then and I didn't fly for quite a few years after that mainly because okay. we had no money <laughs> but um so I didn't start flying again until my probably I was about 23 24 with my boyfriend now husband so we started taking lots of holidays to Europe and things like that. But just clarify, is that boyfriend and husband or boyfriend? No, <laughs> just, I don't know boyfriend the way you, you know. It became my husband. <laughs> I tried to keep an open mind, you know. Yeah. yeah. The holiday. It, he's still with me like 22 years later. So. Oh, that's good. Good sign. Yeah. Yeah. Quite right. Quite. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we flew little flights then and I was just quite excited to be going on holidays at that point. So mm. I was just nervous on the takeoff but yeah then I had my kids in 2010 and 2013 and I know a lot of people that affects them but yes. it didn't really affect me particularly badly like we still traveled and yeah um, when my my eldest was two we went to Australia so that was like a huge deal for me and I coped with that fine mm. so um I don't really know what happened to make me worse but it was about 2017 I just started to get anxiety like through the whole flight and it just built and built from there and I came on your course in 2018 the virgin oh course. you came on one of those did you yeah yeah in Southampton and that had Captain Ralph that's and, right um, so that was really nice and I learned like so much information from that technical information mm. but I still continued to get worse mm. and um yeah a few I can sort of pinpoint it on a few events I but... blame Ralph to be honest <laughs> Yeah. yeah, just little things that happened um not really on the flight itself but just sort of surrounding the flight mm. like worrying about weather and yeah. being away from my family and that sort of thing but anyway so I got to the point in 2018-2019 I was really bad and started getting the anticipation anxiety in the days and weeks before mm. and that was really like when I started to not cope because I was just struggling to live my life at that yeah. point you know like I couldn't work I'd be crying at work I couldn't eat I couldn't like speak to my kids or my husband oh, wow. and yeah. it was just awful and I tried so then the pandemic happened and we didn't go anywhere for three years mm. and then during that time toward the end of the pandemic my husband took a flight and I was tracking his flight because I would also worry about any of my loved ones that took a flight and he had an aborted landing and I was like tracking it and I was like oh my god what's going on and I literally thought he was gonna die or something mm. and um anyway like he landed and he texted me he's like oh yeah it all went fine I was like you had an aborted landing what happened and he's like how do you know that <laughs> um, how dare you <laughs> yeah. and um yeah I was just like I gotta do something about this so then I I did some hypnotherapy and I had diazepam and all that but um I did I, IEMT, which is like an eye movement therapy. And after that, I thought, so now we're back at last year, 2022. I took a flight to Paris with some friends to kind of see how that, if that had helped me. The flights themselves weren't that bad, but it was still the stuff before that I just found so hard. And then six weeks after that, we went to Iceland, which um, I posted about on the group a few times. And um it was that time I was just so bad in the six weeks before I just yeah, thought yeah, about yeah. it all the time and then in Iceland it sort of spoiled the trip for me because again I was anxious about coming home mm. yeah so on flight home I was just like I can't put myself through this anymore physically mentally anything so 
we had a trip in October that we cancelled. I'd never cancelled anything before. And that was to Portugal. And we took a driving holiday instead. And then okay. I was like planning, oh, this is how my life's going to be. Where can I mm. go? You know, in like one week off, you can't get very far. So then I just, because I was still thinking about flying a lot. I thought it'd be like, you decide not to do it and then you just forget about it. But I was yeah. still thinking about it all the time. So somebody mentioned to me to take a, a light aircraft flight. So I did that. And that was actually one of the things that helps me, Steve, is thinking if I could talk to a pilot, then that would sure. really like, reassure me. So I he spent sure. an hour or an hour and a half with me before the flight. We chatted and then oh. he he just showed me the plane and he said, we don't have to go up. But in the end, I did go up and actually right. he um, let me do the takeoff. Which I, I was literally like, are you kidding me? And um, <laughs> That's how easy it is. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. He's like, well, yeah, I, told him, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I told him I'm not good at driving a car, you know, so I'm probably not going to be good at driving a plane. And he's like, well, it's easier than driving, <laughs> than driving a car. Like, and I mean, that was like really empowering, actually. I was mm. like buzzing after that. But um, that's brilliant. So, um, you've done, yeah, you've done so much to try and, you know, you, yeah, you're actually... Yeah. You're, I've you're tried, I feel like I've tried everything <laughs> and then I'm just like oh my god but anyway then I discovered love fly at the same time I think just about the time I posted about that light aircraft flight was one of my first posts and um and I I don't know how I'd never seen it before but as soon as I saw it I recognized you Paul from the course and it's like oh my god this exists and I didn't know about it so that's been amazing He's you know, a very I'm... famous militia. <laughs> yeah. I shall edit he, that out. He's talking he's crap. <laughs> well, like all my family and friends know who you are now because it's just like talking about you like some kind of he's in Hello like, magazine yeah. person. <laughs> I'll edit all this out, you know. I'm not telling not in that beach. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, as you know, Paul, I'm on that group like every day. Yeah, um, I mean, it... really appreciate that. It's I think it doesn't just help others. It helps you as well because I it think does. it's that it really continual process, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I really like everybody says on these podcasts to f find others that feel the same as you. You feel so much less alone. Mm. And um, it's only really people that have the fear that can understand. So yeah. that was like amazing to discover other people that felt the same. And then, as you know, I took a flight with Debbie from the group. In yeah, Canada. amazing. So she's oh. another member of our group, Steve, and she reached out oh. to me because I wanted to take a short flight before I booked a long flight, which I plan to do this summer. And we had such a great time and it, she was just such oh. a good support. Um, we just went to Dublin and back from Birmingham, but um, like it's I was impressive. really anxious the night before and she was just so much full of positivity. And because I'm kind of like glass half empty and she was just like, oh, well, you managed to eat today and you worked and all this and think, look how much progress you've made. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I actually have. Yeah, she is good. Debbie Robotham. So she did yeah. she did off the Virgin course years ago yeah. and then had a sort of blip, came into Love Fly and uh, she's been brilliant contributing as well. And then I know that I saw that there'd been some sort of. Um, sort of pincer movement as she'd attacked you taking on a flight met up and that then posted about that I thought it was brilliant you know I love stuff like that really it's, really, is, it's yeah. really great you know well, so we are going to start um, a friends network and a, a dating site on the back of it hearing yeah. <laughs> flight <laughs> scared um, of flying and lonely join this yeah. group we, well as you saw we just had, had wines and had chat and it was just yeah like, yeah exactly <laughs> 
It's all big, oh, it's all big bluff. Nothing to do with fear of flying whatsoever. Yeah, yeah it was amazing. Um, but she wants to do another one actually in May or mm. June because we're both going on big holidays in July oh, and August. Nice. Oh, that was really good. No, no, brilliant, really brilliant. Yeah, and so you also did our webinar thing recently yeah, as well, which thirty is, day program. Yeah, yeah. And the webinar. So yeah, that's how this came about because I was just typing loads of questions into the chat and mm. you didn't yeah, have time to them off. There's a lot of them. Which is yeah. great. This is good. <laughs> and um, nine-hour webinar. Yeah. Yeah. So Steve, like, because <laughs> of all the stuff I've done, I sort of know all about the technical side of it and how a plane works and the physics and all the rest. So my questions are sort of kind of well, kind of different to what other people have asked. Just they're more sort of like the reality of being a pilot, making decisions, and oh, nice. you know, uh, like the profession sort of thing. I think more. Yeah. Or less. yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, brilliant. Go for it, Melissa. Okay. You know, what um, was yours? So I've got, I've got a list as, here and they're kind of... As you, know the, as you know the technical side of it, do you want to just run through and tell me what... Oh, God. <laughs> or should I throw this airplane away? So we don't I don't know. want <laughs> No, great. Um, far away. So I, just, so I sort of put them into sections, but some of her sections is a bit technical stuff, actually. But um, So I know you fly the 787 and... Uh -huh. Um, everyone in the group is always talking about 787s like an amazing plane and yeah. I'm going on one for the first time in August so I just oh, wonder um, what sets it apart from other planes to you? <laughs> well first of all it was one of the uh, the first airplanes that's made of carbon fiber not not completely there's still certain uh, aluminium uh, parts to it but it is predominantly uh, all carbon fiber and what that basically did a bit like uh, the the invent of sort of sports equipment and I think supercars made of carbon fiber, it just makes it, you know, incredibly strong. But one of the, the, the amazing things that, that happened with this aeroplane was, uh, I don't know if, I think we talked about it in that webinar last week. Um, you know, when they, uh, we talked about the, the testing of the aeroplanes and when they build them. So they have to bend the wings up during testing to, to see that they withstand obviously forces that can never exist in mother nature. So it just shows you how strong the aeroplane is. Anyway, they, they tried to bend the wings again. It's on YouTube, and uh, being this new carbon fiber material, it was incredible. They couldn't actually bend the wings and snap them. They, they got to vertical, and wow. so that will tell you uh, the incredible. First of all, the flexibility, uh, which you know, for it to bend like that, which is what it's designed to. But then they just couldn't snap it. And as you know, this is this is one complete piece. Mm. So the models look like it's but that that wings going all the way through there. So um, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, Again, on YouTube, you, you'll see this machine building these tubes in carbon fiber. It's very, very clever. So that's what the first, but then it also has this particular uh, unique thing for the pressurization in, in the cabin. Now, I know what's going to happen. Everyone listening now is only going to have five 787s. It's just a very... Are you on commission, bull, bully? Yeah, on, exactly. <laughs> I should be working for Boeing. Um, it, it even crossed my mind because... Uh, you know, when I, I came off the 747, the jumbo jet, which, uh, you know, I, to me, it's still the most beautiful airplane in the sky, but I couldn't think of how they could ever improve on that. But when something like this did come out, uh, it has this unique cabin pressurization. And it's for the first time, I mean, fresh air obviously comes into every airplane cabin, mm. but this uniquely comes through, uh, not through the the bleed ducts of the, the engines, et cetera, et cetera. This comes through their own ducts and the airplane. So instantly, everyone said the air is very different in a 787 and stuff. And you know, when you get off an aeroplane after a long haul flight, your clothes smell of that, like you've been on an aeroplane for nine, 10 hours. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. 
that doesn't happen in those those aeroplanes because of this unique Isn't that cabin supposed to help with the, with the jet lag, I've heard? Yes, it does. Yeah. Lag? So what what we instantly found when we used to do sort of the, the big sort of 11, 12 hour flights to the Far East, it, it, it felt as as you would get off, it felt like you'd only been to, say, Boston, you know, for five hours or six hours. It, it really did. It was um, an incredible if you're going to do it long-term longevity for, for doing it for work. Um, mm. I was amazed in my in the, the 10 years that I flew it, how different it was from the 17 years that I flew the, the Jumbo before because, um, yeah, incredible. So I think you will, you'll, you'll definitely notice that because obviously you're, you're going on a long journey. People on the group say that it, it has less turbulence. Is that true? Like, is it less bumpy on there? Yeah, well, that's that's um. Well, if Mother Nature is going to be turbulent, it will be turbulent. But yeah. what they're talking about, they're obviously, which is great. Um, they have certain new flight controls on it, additions. It does, but they're called cruise flaps and things. And, and these 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 uh, flaps and they just move with computers during the flight. And it does it. It's designed to smooth out, you know, ripples and bumps. If it's going to be turbulent, it's going to be, you know, it, yeah, of course. If, if, if the bumps are um big enough they're not obviously like any airplane but it does iron out so that so that's that's very true but interestingly enough airplanes that have been built since a bit like the airbus a350 they haven't gone down that that, that road of okay. the particular cabin air and pressurization they've gone back to conventional so yeah there's uh obviously two schools of thought of it doesn't make any difference it doesn't make it any safer but you, you will definitely definitely notice less fatigue flying flying on it because of this unique cabin air pressurization very 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 clever because it's made of carbon fiber because the shell is even stronger that's why they can pressurize it even more you know it's, it's just um again not making it any safer but that's the whole idea of instead of when you're flying at thirty-seven thousand feet which is the, the cabin pressure is the equivalent of being one mile above so if you're living in denver or or kenya or something like that you know a mile above sea level but with this because of the unique pressure it, it's lower so therefore you know the air is is it's uh, not as thin you know and it's not as dry so it's just yeah very very clever system i think um i think it cost boeing a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think they're still trying to claw that money back but but no it's it's a unique airplane and i think the more the world understands, i think everybody you you're you're not alone by saying wow you feel really different on the 787 so mm -hmm. i'm excited a, to try it <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Still nervous, but excited to try. Yeah, no, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, so I was yeah that's, ask that... you. Sorry. Yeah, no, and and so technically, that's the sort of biggest change is the 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 actual flight deck instruments and uh, the redundancy of the aeroplane. You know, everything that has all the backup systems. That's no different to any other uh, airliner. You know, it has all the the uh, the standard equipment that um, that is very proven. So. And there's there's nothing really different in the flight deck apart from it has a head up display which uh, anyone listening to military pilots fly with it instead of looking at their instruments down on on the sort of you know in front of them that they, they have this reflection onto the windscreen of their instruments below them and it's it's all in sort of green sort of yeah it's a very sharp image of what you need to really look at so the 787 ha has that so they've got it on posh cars as well haven't they no cars they do <laughs> But that's one fancy addition that you know but technically speaking it, it's how it's built is the carbon fibers is the biggest biggest difference yeah yeah, yeah. so the these are just sort of 
that was like my general question, but these are sort of more random. So now you're going for the jugular. Go for it. This is also ease you in, Captain <laughs> Ball. Well, one of the things I was interested in, actually talking about the redundancies, I was amazed Stephen on the light aircraft. He pointed out all the different redundancies, which I was amazed that they had them. But um, yeah, <laughs> that's just an aside. But so I know you can do auto landings, but how come you can't do auto takeoffs? It's due to the equipment on the on the ground, basically. It, it has been done. There are uh, military airplanes that they've, they've done pilotless uh, automatic takeoffs. But basically, with when you do automatic landings at, at, at a big international airport, during fog is, is when we use it, obviously, when we can't see. There are added safety things put in place in that the separation between aircraft is, is bigger. And that's, that's solely due to the... The instrument on the ground that uh, guides you in is called an instrument landing system. Has to be protected in in a in a way that nothing will interfere with the beams coming back up to the the aeroplane. You know, it's like a, a sonar sort of going into the aeroplane, so which it follows. So, and that's been around for years. Autolands have been oh gosh, decades now, which, which yeah. is great. And it's getting more and more sophisticated with the the, the things inside the aeroplane. I mean, we can land now totally, completely blind. You know, you do, it's as in, you know, almost zero visibility. It's 75 metres. Yeah, you, you I've, I've been on a plane that did that and you couldn't even see the other oh, thing. And I was no. like, oh my God. No, exactly. <laughs> but the hardest, bit of, the hardest bit during a foggy day is actually, it's once you land, it's taxing around airfields. That, that's that's mm. the difficult part because it really is. It's like you wouldn't go in your car in, in in suit like that and uh so that's the challenge um but even there's there's ground radar now that we we have there's an instrument in the flight that, that tells you you know exactly where you are which is really it's like you're sat mad on, in the car but the automatic takeoff that there is just no mechanism that would be suitable for such a busy airfield at, at the present time for it to to exist Listen, there are guidance i've got to ask actually would you do, would you get in an aircraft if you knew it was being auto took off and auto landed all the time would i no, not yeah, you. I, mean, I don't care about you. A... I'm asking Melissa. Oh, no. No. Oh. no, and like I know it's been talked about on podcasts about, you know, just piloting it from the ground and no, I wouldn't feel comfortable okay. with that. Not just at one this point in time. Yeah. Okay. And I'm glad there's two pilots plus as well. Yeah, no, that, that's something I agree with you. I think, I don't know if Paul, you're referring to it. So pilotless aeroplanes, I, 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 do you know what? I can't see that happening. Uh, not in our lives, but I, I could be proved wrong. Like, if there was ever to be an, uh, a fully automatic takeoff, you would still have the pilots at the controls. So, like for auto land, you know, you are you are yeah. hovering the controls. Your your hands are actually touching the controls, because and we train to obviously intervene. And when we go into the simulator every six months, uh, that's one of the things that happens. You know, we we practice our auto lands and stuff, and then we have failures introduced at you know at, at critical stages, and you have to take control manually of the aeroplane and and do an aborted landing like your husband did um, <laughs> it's very exciting but the auto takeoff if it was to ever happen with it there would still be pilots at the controls so of course i thought paul's answer so yes the answer is that that would be uh, an incredible uh, step forward but uh, there would always be but i can't see commercial airlines being pilotless because as you say would you get on it I, i'm yeah, not sure i don't think you'd attract the passengers no. as much no <laughs> exactly yeah so just talking about the simulator training how many, you know, when you do it every six months, how many situations are you given, like, each each testing time? Oh, uh, unbelievable. So it's two days, so uh, four-hour yeah. sessions, so eight hours in total. And during that time, so you you, you always practice the, you know, the, the really big 
controls that we have. So it's always going to be engines. Uh, you'll always get engine failures and engine fires. You'll get hydraulic problems, obviously, with mm-hmm. testing the redundancy of the aeroplane, um, electrical, air conditioning, pressurization, you know, practicing decompressions, you know, emergency descents and things like that. It's always the big controls. But that said, every single thing in the technical manual that Boeing built, so for the book for the 787, so it's about that thick, in a three-yearly cycle, every single component that they, they you will be tested in over a three-year period. But every six months, the the really big, big systems. And when I say that, you know, every component, it's, it's things that wouldn't even if you would carry on to destination. You know, it'd be like a, yeah. a a light would come on, you know, on the overhead panel, and and you just have to diagnose it. But it's not a it's not a stopper. You know, it's just one of these things. Yeah. So in a three-year cycle, you will absolutely go through every single feature of the aeroplane but every six very, months very, in, very intense training then. <laughs> yeah yeah and so do you practice things like not technical like hijacking or something like that yes uh, separate from the the simulator so we uh, every year so um you probably heard um sarah foul on the last one so the, it, every year we we have to do what's called a, a a safety and emergency procedures exam with with the cabin crew so the, so Every six months we do that, but every year the cabin crew come in for all their sort of general testing again of all their things. And one of the things that is incorporated there as well is we have cabin simulators at, um, you know, the, the technical ground schools of, of, of airlines. Some people rent out the space, some people have their own actual cabin mock-ups. And uh, so that's where we practice filling the cabins with smoke. We have to put all the, all the fire gear on and stuff and find our way to, you know, exits okay. and things. But one of the things is you're sitting there in a sort of a mock-up flight, and all of a sudden the lights go out, and then uh, they they hire these. Um, I don't, Paul, you, they're they're actual, they're, uh, they they military personnel, I think. Or yeah, they're, they're they do. Um, they're, they're they're people that would be particular skill set. So it could be the police yeah. that element, or yes. I have done some with the military before, but it's normally the police because you've got people. That's their th- thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then scary the shit. Break, and then they yeah it is it. <laughs> and then, they don't take any oh, they yeah, don't yeah. take any nonsense no. you think oh no. it's just a role play but they, they, <laughs> you do not feel like that because you're getting shouted no. at and your head's pushed down yeah, and, yeah and you, you get hit you get it's being a bit like that sas celebrity <laughs> it's the worst thing you can do you'll, you'll get the butt of his gun in your face but yeah so that, that's something that um is regularly trained and then we have Although, again, security is a big, but we have lots of procedures about, you know, because the flight deck now is um, completely sealed off with um, armor-plated doors. And, yeah. and So do you yeah. always have to have two people in there at a given time? Yes, so correct. If, if one of you goes to the toilet, a cabin crew member comes Yes, in. yes, correct, yeah. I was lucky enough in the 1980s to get to go up to the, oh, the uh, where I the pilots know. were flying and seeing, like, beautiful sunrises over the Atlantic and... It, it is and and i you know i think i've again i used to say it on courses that was the best way that we could actually help people with a fear because they used to you know i mean god they were brought up on their hands and knees crying and then when they come into the cockpit and they see you you know with your you know you're drinking a cup of coffee and you're really chilled out just chat the sun's coming up and over there and you're going you know you're more interested in the view and and they're going why aren't you facing the front looking at them because in the movies you've got your hats on you're wrestling the controls aren't you you know john wayne thing yeah um no and then then they start to realize actually you know you know what it actually consists of and again that's that they're instantly 
been given some knowledge and it it, it it helps them no end and and the best bit of course like you know, i don't know if you stayed up but we you know people that were really interested and or really terrified we used to ask them to stay for landing which was just yeah yeah we were we were only kids but me and my brother used to go up and my brother oh, wanted to be a pilot so he got to stay for a landing once and i think that oh, was fantastic. a pretty Great. cool moment for him but yeah i was just I was, like uh, i got bored I so i went and sat down <laughs> no no i was one of those boys i used to annoy yeah I was going to ask you that if um, being a pilot was your lifelong dream. Like, have you always very strange? I I did like just like you as an early age. So uh, I was born in Kenya because my parents were were working out there, and um, and we used to travel back and forth in the early days. And and they don't know why because nobody previously in our family had flown. So and I I must have got the bug by just going to ask to see the flight deck, and then yeah, I never I never actually sat in the cabin on any long haul flight I was up in the, the flight oh, wow. so, yeah oh, just yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice yeah that's also back to the simulator thing are you tested yeah. on your own or are you tested in pairs like to test your communication skills with each other these are good no, questions very, Melissa very these are these are well thought out yeah brilliant um no you're tested as a crew so uh captain and and uh first officer okay co-pilot and uh yes you're tested as a crew and absolutely one of the the biggest things and you're tested on what's called human competencies it's workload management situation awareness and behavior and you know flying skills etc etc and you know knowledge automation everything it's 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 great but one of the things is communication and that is a huge thing now that we're very lucky that the people that were our sort of you know the, the guinea pigs of aviation in the sort of 50s and 60s that that did not exist because mm. the, generally the captain donkey's years ago was a man that was a decorated war hero and and he sat there as Paul says probably still with his hat on just to make him feel you know even more important and they used to and they used to shout and swear and tell everyone to just sit there and touch nothing why why he did and of course you know they're fallible they they had their limits and of course you know sadly years ago before the onset of um anything you know to do with human factors and so was introduced uh, it was about the 70s or 80s um, before they realised actually things were happening and going wrong because of one simple thing, they weren't communicating. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah such an, it's such an important thing, isn't it? And um, in totally. all walks of life. And... Uh, uh, absolutely, it's not just, it's not... You and it's all a team, anybody. isn't it? Like you say, you would always listen Definitely. to cabin crew if they had, if they pointed out a problem, whereas in the past it might have been like, oh, everyone just bows down to me, you know, as the captain. No, yeah. Which was Stephen yeah. misses, because he's, <laughs> he's never had that level of respect from anyone. no. Uh, no. I keep asking for it, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, a book I'd recommend is that is the black box thinking, because that's based around this idea of human factors. And, and it takes the airline as an example and then says, like, if we rolled this out in lots of other industries, how much safer they would be. So I, mm. I, I really love that book. Yeah. Yes. But yes, no, brilliant question, because it, it is very, mm. very important. And more so now in, as you say, not just aviation. I think everyone's realising that, um, you know, with mental well-being and, and, and you, communication is key, isn't it, to, to tell okay. people, you know. Yeah, and you have to be able to be open and honest about anything. Totally, yeah. yeah. Totally, if you're not, yeah. If you're not feeling up to it, you have to be able to say, don't you? Completely. It's almost thinking out loud, you know, tell people how you're feeling. That was what I was going to ask, actually, but I, I imagine... I imagine it's all teamwork, but if you had a disagreement, like say you had a situation and you had a disagreement with your first officer about how to handle it, how would you deal with that? And like, would your decision always trump 
everything oh. else. Great question. Oh, brilliant question. Wow. Yeah. Are you sure you haven't been an examiner in your... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that should be my new There's job. There's a career, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm going to um, audit the pilots. Yeah, exactly. Well, weirdly enough, that's that's a, a... Well, it's a brilliant question, but weirdly enough, that does actually come up because, um, yeah, things do... You know, personalities do clash. And one of the biggest things that that is is looked for is is resolution to obviously a disagreement and you've hit the nail on the head the captain is not always right absolutely there are some very very uh, well there everyone's trained to the same but particularly you know uh, young first officers coming here they, you know they they love it they absorb they're like sponges you know and then they can see things that you know perhaps someone you know that's done this for 30 years actually is you know could be missing you know a vital ingredient of something to make a not so much a a, a more safe decision but a better decision mm. and and that definitely happens and that particularly comes into when you're being uh, assessed to be a captain once you've done your apprenticeship as a co-pilot mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the biggest things and uh, you, you'll be put in a scenario where you will find that as a, as a huge challenge of, of the district but so the answer to your question is when that's uh, and it does happen and it, it happens out of the blue. You know, sometimes you're, you know, I, I sit there and you're you're giving them their six monthly test or examination and and it will be what you think or or deem to be quite straightforward and all of a sudden you know someone's got an opinion and and the other person's opinion differs. It yeah. must be resolved. It you can't ever have a so you know well well you know. Damn it! I, I'm I'm the big cheese, so therefore we we, we follow the uh, that. So, yeah, so that we need. A... Well, I think we need an example here, because <laughs> uh, at the moment I think people listen to Papa imagine this like fisticuffs up the front saying, "No, I think it's safe to land." No, I don't think it's safe to land. You know, so you, I think you need to give us a sort of a lightish example of what that might look like. <laughs> right, I'm right though, aren't I, Mister? That's what you're thinking. I know you're thinking this. Yeah, yeah. No. So, what would be an example? Well, let's take into consideration that uh, that's a really good thing. So you talked about automatic landings. So, and this this is one of the things that we, we test often for people coming up for command. So you will give them a certain amount of failure. So when the redundancy kicks in, um, the airplane is still absolutely fine and it's flying. But what you can do is, is you can set a scenario. They're coming into land and it's a foggy day and they will have to do an automatic landing. No question. There's, you know, the, the visibility is too low to do it. And manual landing so they were set up for an automatic landing they do their briefing absolutely fine so they're, they're commencing the approach and what you then do is introduce some failures and the redundancy will come down and down and down and down and what will happen is you will make this the airplane now not capable of an automatic landing it and it will come up as a as a, a you know a, a master caution that um or not a caution it would be an advisory to say that um no auto land, basically. That's that's what it says. Mm -hmm. Now, in the heat of the moment, and everyone's you know dealing with these major problems, and whether it be, you know, it would mainly be flight controls and hydraulics for an automatic land. And all of a sudden, if if you we have three systems mostly, and if you fail two systems, you can't uh, no longer auto land. You have to do a manual landing. So imagine the scenario in the heat, you know, and they're getting so involved with you know doing all their communications and planning, but in the that they actually miss that vital ingredient of you won't be able to auto land. So they're still doing the approach. And whoever spots it first will say, um, uh, you do know that. Uh, and then, of course, as the penny drops, perhaps, um, then they realise that actually 
I can't land on this this uh, runway in front of me or this airfield. I'm going to have to divert to look for weather where the cloud base and visibility are much higher. Mm -hmm. but that's a really light, uh, you know, it, it, it shouldn't get any more involved than just, uh, you know. And and to be honest, actually now, and and, I, and this is very true, the, especially the older I got, there's a, it's more, there aren't egos anymore. It, it, donkeys years ago, if that was sort of in the 80s, 90s, when I first, it would be, well, I was going to say that anyway, you know. <laughs> you know well, I, yeah, I knew exactly what you know, of course, I was just waiting for the. Well, you put the landing gear down. You were obviously going to. You know, and um, but now I think it would be more like, it would be. Oh my God! You know, you put your head in your hands. Go. Why didn't I? See? You'd be frustrated basically if someone else picked it up. But it's what's important there. It's not a. It's not a game. It's not a point system. You know, ha ha. Fifteen love to me. So I. So, you know, it, in that two days of assessment, you cannot. Uh, again, I've seen it a little bit over the years. You know that they are trying to sort of. You know look better than the other person sitting next to them thinking that you're going to give them a better result because they know because you're saying well why didn't you just speak out loud and say that things and over the years i have to say in the last 20 mm. years because of human factors yeah exactly what you said you, you are absolutely you know you feel empowered to just to say anything think out loud and it doesn't matter yeah. whether you're a junior co-pilot or part of a big or, team as well aren't you well, totally seen, at the end of the day because for 40 it's, years it's been the, the high uh, human factors training has been going on the airlines so yes. i thought and steve's been training it a long time so you must have seen quite a lot of changes over that time massively it really was i mean i i, I joined probably uh you know in 1990 but just that the real as paul says it was um human factors had just sort of literally taken hold and it was it was so new to I mean, it didn't mean anything to me because i was obviously so new to it but i could see the way all of a sudden captains were being addressed in 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 uh, simulator testing because you know they they didn't have it their own way uh, like they used to but, you know and it was a, a bit of you know the old dog and new trick sort of syndrome it was um it, it was a, a huge change but thankfully a very very necessary yeah. well that's what's made the difference isn't it because mechanically it's so and technically mm -hmm. it's so safe the, it, the the sort of the weak link is really is the human isn't it so that's why the communication absolutely. really matters no, it, it still is. And, uh, you know, statistic-wise, it's still proven that exactly is it, is it 50, 53% of all occurrences in an airplane is, is due to human factors, not um, not the airplane itself. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's why I was more interested to talk to a pilot because I know, like, the planes are so built so well, they're so safe, so mm -hmm. many backups, but I wanted to just yes. find out more about how you handle situations, no. conflicts, etc. No, totally. That's why um, when I talk about the company, so we used to be we used to be graded, you know, one to five in the simulator. Five, you get the gold star, and and uh, you know you're on your badge and stuff, and a silver star if you got four. And, and then uh, it, everyone's all the numbers don't mean it. it; just means you know, of course, you're expected to be you know good, and if you get below three or something, then you retake your your test. But all of a sudden now we don't have numbers anymore. We're not marked out. It's these nine competencies that. Um, have to be assessed and so your your report is based on you know how good you were at communication situation okay. awareness workload management decision making and solving etc etc it's um yeah it's, it's a a very very um very good system in place now to to assess the human factor rather than can i share a story as well that's linked to that sorry i know Please, it's steve time so. but it's just i used to i've coached pilots going for captain interviews and obviously i'm not a pilot but it's because it's all behavioural stuff. So you've got some fantastic first officers out there who've been 
RAF, Navy, whatever, they've got tons of experience. You know, you would totally trust them with the aircraft, but they don't get to make captain because they don't, they're not able to have that level of communication, which is not just about communicating as a first officer. It's much bigger than that, you know, making leadership decisions mm. and involving the whole crew, briefing people, that sort of softer interpersonal skills. And so and I've seen it quite a few times that people just don't, they just don't get it, but they don't get that promotion. So, you know, it's perfectly fine as a pilot. They're probably a better pilot than most people on the on the fleet, but just don't have that extra bit, you know, that, and I don't know if you can relate to that, Steve, but there's been a few people over the years who just think they keep going, they get three chances and if they don't get it, they don't, they never get it again. That's it. You know, it's just the say you don't have that, that softer side that we need, you know. No, totally. No, it has. You're absolutely right. The um, the the, the single seat pilots of the military uh, sometimes do find it hard to adapt to. Now you're in a crew environment because they didn't have you know they didn't some of them didn't have a navigator. You know they were single seat. You know that and in the air force that's deemed to be the best. You know pilot. You know the single seat guys. And uh, so for them it's a huge learning curve to then actually sit next to someone. Actually now you're working together. You know rather than because they just they didn't have to. They, they were looking after themselves. So yeah, we have had a, occurrences of. As Paul says, very decorated pilots in in their previous life, but now uh, have to adapt to what's called a multi multi crew. Uh, so, mm. yeah. Steve, can I ask about communication? But are pilots taught about as part of their training communicating with the passengers? Like, because a lot of us in the group, find, like me included, if I get on there and the pilots like really reassuring or like like for example, I was taking off and in a high winds day and I was absolutely terrified and the pilot mm. came on and said oh you know it's a windy day it'll be a bit rough till I don't know 4,000 feet or something and then it'll yeah. be fine and I just felt so much better like about the takeoff because it was like mm. really bumpy and I was like would have been so worried but and then um, again when we, we were flying to New York we got there and he had to you know take a different landing approach um, and he told us all that because it was kind of like oh why are we now flying for for the map watchers like me why are we um flying um this way and he came on and said and I was like oh that's that for me was then like positive flight experience but you know some of them that's don't right. really communicate much at all and I think it's really useful as part of their training if they realize about well anybody but also fearful flyers that if they just said a few words about things it would really help Oh, totally. And that is one of the huge changes as well. Uh, again, when I first started, you know, you, you were never taught how to um, uh, to do PAs or, or what you would say, you know, and it was completely up to, you know, yeah. and again, a lot of them, you know, they, you know, they sounded, oh, hello, everyone, like, it was, and you, it was a typical, you know, that's, uh, and again, they would only say, what in their head was necessary that they if it was a windy day it just wouldn't register with a yeah. lot of pilots because yeah. they knew it was safe so therefore well, why you're coming with me so why would I bother so and over the years pilots are taught to be more ambassadors for for the end you know you're you have to go and meet the customers you know for example in a, in a delay um things that have changed over the years now um even despite being locked in the cockpit during the flight but on the ground you know the flight deck doors open and if you know you're taught to go into the cabin maybe and and talk to you know reassure me why there's a delay um, yeah. i've been involved in situations where you know you have to deplane everyone and they have to go back into the terminal building because the technical fault or weather or you know and then one of the best things you can do is then go back up into the departure lounge and, and go on the tannoy system and, and you know 
show people that you're you're with them on this journey you know yeah, you've got so to show empathy putting, putting a face to a voice is sometimes nice too mm. but totally totally so what um huge encouragement happens now is is for especially for new joiners you know young first officers are um, told don't forget you know when you're addressing on the PA that you must, you know, give relevant details, not just, you know, sit back and relax and enjoy the as, as everyone's <laughs> yeah. I hate that phrase. I've never used it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Sit back and relax. Everybody. Not going to happen. I know. And they, and they always, and that was, and I remember when I first joined, I was thinking, does everybody, can, everybody say, where's that written down? Sit back, yeah, relax yeah, and enjoy yeah. the fight. And you're, yeah. you're fine. Pilots. And now I've said it, everyone's going to go, he said it. He said it. And, yeah. uh, and I never did because I know, a lot of people aren't relaxed and and because well, Melissa's of, there she's waiting she's checking the maps in definitely. case you need yeah, to consult exactly. her <laughs> I'm monitoring yeah. the altitude for you <laughs> it, it, exactly I know yeah. just going to pop back and check on with Melissa <laughs> exactly and yeah it's the best thing you can do because you know a little bit of uh, knowledge for for everyone you know why are we you know all of a sudden we're going into the holding pattern why well the winds are now out of you know the crosswind is too much on this runway we're having to hold while they set up the new runway for landing, you know, et cetera, like, you know, things like that. And, or yes, we're beginning our approach in New York. And by the way, the forecast winds down below are, you know, pretty strong. So therefore it is going to be a little bit rough on the approach. Absolutely nothing to worry about. It's nice, you know, it's it's just, nice if you're prepared for that, I think. like Totally, because then, yeah, exactly. And then, but sadly, yes, I totally with you. I, I, I'd hate to put a percentage and I think it's less of it. I would say, as much as 90% of pilots years ago had no, it just wouldn't cross their mind to, to, yeah, to tell people because that's their job. You know, it's a bit like you going into your, your bank and thumping the desk and saying, as the bank goes, you know, I want you to do this and do that. It's almost mm -hmm. like, you know, how dare you tell me how to do my job sort of thing, you know. So yeah. it, it's, not, it's not like that anymore. And I think the more human factors plays a part in, it, in every industry, it's, um, yeah, awareness to your audience, I think. Yeah, let's do that. Sorry, I've still got loads of questions. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I shall stop right. interrupting. You just rattle them out. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's Saturday, it? we've got all day. <laughs> this should be a quick one anyway. Are you regularly drug and alcohol tested? And are you um, alcohol tested before every flight? Or is it just spot checks? Yes, uh, correct. It's spot checks. So, you know, it's not regulation to do every single thing. But yes, it's completely random spot checks. And yeah. Because um, I was um, on a coach last weekend and he said he can't start his coach until he blows in a breathalyzer, which I thought was pretty amazing. Wow. I was like, yeah. oh, do they not have that on a plane? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's very, I'm totally for it if they do. I mean, I don't, the regulations in, you know, and the interesting thing as well, if you don't know, if, if you do get spot and checked as well, you won't operate the flight. And um, if that, interesting yeah. enough because of the psychology sort of effect of it you know because nobody like you know it's like being called over in the in the police and the thing and it's, it still makes you nervous even though you know you haven't you know you haven't had a drink but when you're blowing into the breathalyzer it does yeah. you know it gives you that feeling of guilt doesn't it but, uh, but you also got the fact that you know you've got you're checking on each other aren't you so it's not like it is i mean that, that's your job i mean well you'll get to prison for it as well but yeah that's your job over as well of course so um, yeah my next one is who determines whether you're allowed to fly over areas where there's war ongoing is that like the airline mm. or the government brilliant question brilliant question yeah so you know every airlines are regulated by everything so there is a a level of security obviously involved in all of that and government are speaking to airlines and things and exactly when there is 
war like there is in Ukraine, obviously, at the minute. So the flights to the Far East now are horrendously long because the most direct route was uh, down through uh, Russia and then China. And of course, uh, the Russians have put a complete ban on on uh, international traffic. So um, and no fly zone, even though there's no war in Russia. But that's because they're they're literally, um, you know, they're just doing that and saying <laughs> you can't do that. But Ukraine and there is no I mean, that's that again, that was a very direct route, especially when you're going down to, to sort of, you know, India and, and Pakistan and stuff. And you can't fly over Ukraine anymore. So um, absolutely, there would be. And how's that put into place? Well, that that comes out as a as a, a government notice, and airlines have to pick it up immediately. And uh, it comes down from the authorities. And so our flight planners automatically can't use. You know, there's a series of motorways up there, highways and roads and stuff. You know, airways as they're called, and they will be completely closed, and you'll you'll have to find a, a different route. So therefore, sadly, it adds time and. Yeah. More fuel, etc. Yeah. How many? How much of a break do you have to have between flights when you're a long haul pilot? Great. So it depends on uh, the time zone that you you've been to. So, for example, if you go to the east coast of America, so which is a five hour time change mm-hmm. when you come back, so you can have a minimum of twenty four hours off. Mm-hmm. Most airlines obviously try and give more, but if you then go subsequently to the west coast which is an eight-hour time zone change, you must have 48 hours off. Okay. So it, it does depend on what what time of day you're traveling. At night time, there's more more restrictions on how many hours you can do. Um, there's a huge table set out uh, by the authorities that, that certain countries have different regulations for their hours, but in, in Europe, we, we all come under the same. Uh, it must be quite hard work with jet lag and things like that and when you sleep and not to be overtired when you're flying yes yeah it is and again it is your responsibility your license to do that so basically um it, it is strange i have to say in 32 years of doing it do, do you ever you just accept it you, you're just so used to your body feeling um you know it does sound glamorous to people you know traveling which is lovely you do get to see the world but there is a uh a physical element of it that actually you you have to be very aware of when to my motto is that if you if you if you feel like sleeping sleep a lot of people have different ways of coping you know they they stick to just gmt time you know uk time and it's amazing you know that they they turn night into day down route which i i i i, I don't find works for me so i just sleep when when you need to but um, yeah. absolutely you must be fully rested before a flight because it is one of the things that you have to you mustn't report fatigues for for any duty it's entirely up to you it's not like you're not going sick or anything you know you're not pulling a sickie or or a sky or anything you're just genuinely um i'm not up to operating because for obvious reasons that you're yeah. operating a piece of machinery that requires your full attention okay um yeah so these are just um my i call them my what if questions so <laughs> love it go for it <laughs> So this is something that's always concerned me and I've heard talked on the podcast a lot. Um, you know, if you, if one engine fails, what happens if both <laughs> engines fail at takeoff? And I think, am I right, you like test each engine in turn before you take off, don't you? So you kind of like were one of them and then you were the other one. So I guess you know that they work, but yeah, I've always and, just and... had this internal panic because I hate takeoffs that you just be like, oh, oh they don't work. <laughs> It's the feeling you don't like it. Actually, you test them together. So uh, on the start of the 
on the start of the takeoff run, if this, I believe this is what you're referring to. So you're, mm -hmm. you come onto the runway and of course you'll, you'll see out the window you're on it, and then you hear the initial noise and you'll, you'll hear sort of like sort of 25% of the power comes through. As, and what we do is you bring the thrusters and you, you want the engines to come up to a certain, you know, 20, 25% of their power. And you want to see that they're all, first of all, coming up together, that one's not lagging behind the other because that will obviously cause um, a flight control problem. But uh, you want them to then be what we call stabilised. And we actually call that. And we, we actually say stable. Because what you want to see is as they're ticking over at this sort of reduced power, you want to see that they're, they're in the parameters that you expect. Uh, you know, the oil pressure is increasing, the temperatures are increasing, but obviously not outside limits. And then, and then we set the thrust that we've calculated for the weight of that aeroplane to get off the runway and what speed we need to. But I can tell you all the way down the runway, the person who is not flying, their eyes are glued on the engine instruments to, to call out any um, parameters that might be obviously slightly different. So we do obviously absolutely examine uh, every six months and obviously the critical point is actually you know you, we've heard that on the podcast we, we get to a speed called v1 which is the point of no return so after that anything happens you're you're going into the air because there's not now enough runway to stop yeah. mm -hmm. but that's the critical point to take off so that's when we always practice engine failure so we, we take that problem into the air and you fly away on on one engine mm -hmm. um so it just reminded me when I was in the light aircraft, you know, pushing the thrust forward was such a like, oh, yeah. even in yeah, a little yeah. plane was a really um, amazing experience just to see how, like, how loud it was and it just it's going exactly, forward yeah. and then, you know, yeah. pulling the whatever it's called back and it went and I was like, oh yeah. my god, <laughs> like, yeah. just remembering that really because that, yeah. that was like really? so special to me because I've always hated takeoff and it's just like, oh my god. Yeah. You're flying the plane. <laughs> exactly. There we so go. I think, I think that's why he did it really, just to give me that sense of control totally. and actually realizing it was not as difficult as you might think it is. But in no, a little exactly. Well, exactly. And the fact that you were pulling back on the control gun. So what that's telling you is that that's connected to the flight controls operates the yeah. elevator at the back. That and he was, test, he was testing the engines too, like before we took off. And so yes. like, oh, yeah. we got to do these few things first. So I do. Yeah, so the, all the checks. Those, yeah, the single uh, engine ones. Yeah, you 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 rev up to almost full power. I think. I mean, it's thirty years and love, but yeah, we used to do that, and then you you test all the um the parameters of that engine while you do that. The magnetos, I seem to know. My next what what if question is: What would happen if the landing gear didn't come down? And do you know that it's come down fully, like before you land the plane? You can know that from the cockpit, I guess. Brilliant question. Yeah, yeah, we, we do actually. So we have a series of lights, obviously, for um, each. So you've got the two on the uh, under the belly, the, the main uh, gear, and you've got the nose wheel. So each system is connected to a warning system in, in our in our flight deck. So and the, you'll hear it. You might even see it in the in the movies, you know, gear down three greens. So three green lights means all the gear is in place, the nose wheel and the two uh, okay. trucks that are under the belly. So answer to your question uh, what happens if it doesn't come down so obviously we have our backup systems yeah. so we have where we can release them by gravity yep which is obviously again what we practice and then we also practice you know in our simulator tests we practice all scenarios we practice maybe just the left wing gear not coming down but the other two are 
or we practice just the nose wheel not coming down but the main two then we practice how to land with either a nose wheel failure or one of the gear failure, or both the main gear failing and just the nose wheel and then of course what we ultimately practice of course is is with all the the, the landing gear up and again what would you do then would you land in water or would you have to land in on the runway no we, we land on the the runway there i mean two really good things have, have happened in, in that instance i say i'm sure it wasn't very good for the people on board there but so sully we talked about you know in the hudson oh, river which because that was an amazing decision that he he made instantly by choosing either to fly over populated areas and try and make a runway and he decided that no there wasn't enough distance so he landed straight up and we practiced landing on water and you don't put the gear down because obviously mm. you need obviously a, you know the surface underneath it aeroplane to be as smooth as possible because you're landing on on water but on runways when when you're landing there so there's a, a brilliant uh, video on youtube and i i have it is a lot it's a polish aeroplane lot which is their national carrier and it's a boeing 767 or 777 i can't remember and the gear wouldn't come down and it's it's completely filmed and with all the passengers getting off the aeroplane as well on the runway because obviously they're vacating yeah th there's a certain technique it's noisy. It makes, yeah. a, it, it makes a lot of noise and there's a lot of sparks now. And there's things that you do to set up for that. So there's certain ways, you know, when so when we land on water, there's a is a is a different technique of, of landing on water than there is with normal landing gear down and landing. But landing without gear on a on a runway is also there's a technique now. One of the biggest things is you'll get rid of as much fuel as you've got on the aeroplane because now you don't want to expose yourself to carrying lots of fuel and sparks and everything, because obviously, you know, the metal is going to, you know, the friction against the runway is huge. So one of the things is we dump the fuel before we don't make the aeroplane as light as possible. We don't use the reverse thrust. You know, you hear that in yeah. massively noisy. So you wouldn't use reverse thrust on that because obviously, you know, you're going to separate the engines and cause even more problems there. But it is the best braking system though. Once the aeroplane <laughs> actually touches down, you stop very, very quickly. So, and then what we're, what we're trained to do then is when it comes to a halt, of course, then you then your training kicks in. You don't just say, oh, thank God for that. I played a lottery tonight. That's brilliant. Walk <laughs> you, then, you then just say, you know, you need all the emergency services to come to the aeroplane to see if there's any imminent danger to the, the aeroplane. And then you make a decision, obviously, whether to evacuate quickly or disembark by steps or et cetera, et cetera. You will, wow. it doesn't stop there, basically, but. And there's a really, yeah, look for it on YouTube. Yeah, it's a lot. So it's definitely, anyway, it's a, a lot, L-O-T. Okay. Um, and it lands without the gear in it. And the whole thing is video. So, cool. yeah. Um, Years ago, they used to put foam on the runway as well. They used to put foam down, which would dampen or suppress any sparks. But they, they don't do that anymore. So it was deemed it's beyond my, uh, why they don't anymore. But uh, they don't need to, basically. <laughs> Oh yeah. If if something happened to both the pilots, would it be possible to for a member of the cabin crew to land the plane like being talked down from the ground if there wasn't another pilot on board? Yeah, it, it is possible. It, it it totally is, yeah. So what the cabin crew now do, and again, talk about changes in, in procedures for them. So they now get taught in their yearly refresher of where our radios are. And how, I mean, years ago, they would, you know, they they wouldn't they wouldn't know that that, that because we have three lots of radios redundant. So which one are you transmitting on? You know, is it? And uh, they now know how to operate a radio. They know 
not only are you talking to the air traffic control center that you're flying over on your main radio, but in our backup, we always have what's called the emergency frequency is one two one five, which is an international frequency for everything, not just not just uh, flying. And uh, you're always monitoring that as well. So they're they're taught how to they can transmit on that if they if they ever found themselves in that situation. Can I so just could ask they, what yes. happened to two pilots, by the way? <laughs> I mean, is it like they both just like pegged it at the same moment? Is this is this the story? Because I'm trying to work out because because you know there's the possibility that one might go and then the other one will do yep. something about that. You know, but curious the, about your scenario. They. Oh, yeah. like how how I came up with that question was when, great I, when I decided I wasn't flying anymore. I read loads of novels <laughs> about plane incidents, and one of them was that and a cabin crew member had to try to land a plane. So that's oh. how I came. Up. Okay. But they like yeah. basically got murdered. <laughs> All right, okay, yeah. <laughs> not gonna happen. I saw that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is possible. Yeah, you can, you can. Uh, you know, they just like be told what to plug into the autopilot or something. Yes, and and they would do an automatic landing completely. They wouldn't be able to land it manually. Absolutely, absolutely no way. And uh, so, but automatically they would be. Uh, yeah, they would be. They would be talked down. Um, I'm trying to think of a an example of. Yeah, you would have to have obviously a pilot would have to come into the air traffic control center and obviously talk them through uh, exactly you know what to do but again it's the chances as paul says happening in fact weirdly enough it did ha- did you read in america it happened last um last week <laughs> yeah one of the pilots was taken ill and they did that incredible thing that i suppose people that have a few don't want to hear is <laughs> is there a pilot on board and there was there was a, a positioning pilot from another airline mm. weirdly enough and they went up into the cockpit obviously they, they obviously had their ID passed that they they were a genuine pilot and uh, they sat in the and obviously the person left was doing the flying and they did the radios and the communication oh, so that's good. yeah so it, what um, happened to the pilot that was taken ill did was he he she okay yeah no they did a an emergency uh, land and um, it was a full on defibrillator I believe and uh, they got them to hospital so uh, wow. yeah so the yeah. crew went into effect and yeah so oh, that's good yeah. yeah because you wouldn't just you know, wouldn't just carry on and go ha ha there's one more off the seniority list. <laughs> I'm moving up. Um, <laughs> can I have his expenses? Yeah. Exactly. And even if it's the most junior co-pilot, on their very first flight, they're trained to do that and they, they have yeah. to land the airplane themselves. Because that's one of the things we do practice in the simulator as well in our six months is yeah. pilot capacitation and you have to um, land uh, the airplane on your own. Yeah. And in that instance also, you bring in a member of the cabin crew to read checklists to you as well. Okay. You don't you know, end up, make, make it a team. You, know? you, don't, you don't do it all on your own. My next one is, is it possible that someone could hack on into the onboard systems in the cockpit from the ground in an attempt to hijack the plane or cause an accident? No, no, no. This not there's possible. Nothing. No, no. My husband uh, works in um, IT and he said that they have people purposely trying to hack into their system as like a job. And he wondered if you have people in airlines that attempt to do that to see if it's possible. Oh, uh- I'm, I'm sure. I mean, to this day, they still get. It used to happen a lot when I, when I first started flying. They used to get. I, I don't know the, the term for them now, but you know, people used to ring up the airline and say oh, they the hoax just, calls they, or the terrorist calls. The hoax call. They, they just thought it was funny. You know, they were maybe they were at a party and having a drink. So, oh, let's ring up an airline and say flight turns on there. And it, sometimes it was a guess, and then they, you knew it was a hoax. But sometimes they would actually know a flight number that was actually taking off. This is long before flight radar and stuff i mean it must be so easy now to just see who's airborne and stuff. 
they'd mm. ring up and say, the bomb and as a pure joke. But of mm. course, it's taken very, very seriously. And then there's a thing that's a, a procedure that's put into place because of that. But I'm sure, I have no doubt, dare I say, you know, with terrorism, that there's, they're, they're trying all sorts of things, hacking into it. But no, there's no way of actually penetrating an aircraft system uh, at all. Um, even the event even if they did that, you can always fly it manually, can't you? If you didn't have your all your oh, absolutely, totally. There's nothing that ever affect the flight. You know, you're still connected to the flight control, so yeah. you know, the autopilot just makes it a damn sight easier. And yeah, uh, yeah. but even to the extent of, for example, say, oh gosh, say all the electricity failed in the. I mean, the, don't get me wrong. In air traffic control centers, they practice all this thing. They so they pack. They practice when there's a huge failure of electricity. So there will be backup systems, generators that will be. But say you know, a Tom Cruise movie or something, and then, and you know, you couldn't, you couldn't have any more air traffic control. We all have procedures in the air if you lose communication. There's, again, one of the things that, so we know exactly what what, what to do. So it's, it's not, mm. um, but no, good, good thinking. Well, my last what if question is about lots of times, I know I shouldn't read about incidents, but I have in the past. <laughs> Like a lot of times it seemed to be that the plane somehow goes into a stall that causes um incidents. And I know you get trained for it. So I just I don't know. How do you correct a stall? Like Yeah. Wow. Makes I guess sense. it's part of your training, but is obviously it, it sometimes yeah. it happens where they don't actually do it properly. Yeah. So you know when we talk about that the most important thing is when, when there is unfortunately an accident in aviation so they look for the thing called the black box and the, and the, yeah. and the flight, flight data recorders now the reason for doing that obviously one they want to find out what's happened but secondly it's to prevent the accident ever happening again and so but it's a brilliant question because when we when we get taught to fly and we do our basic licenses we do exactly what you've just talked about it's called stalling and we have to recover a stall and the stall of an error so You've heard me say in the podcast, so there's always air omnipresent. So there's always lift on an aeroplane. So how the way an aeroplane stalls is it gets to a certain angle of attack where now, say, I'm exaggerating, but you can see the aeroplane there. And I know people on the podcast won't be able to see it. But so what, if, sort, of if angle, I praise, what sort of degree angle is that? Because obviously we're using the well, theatre of the mind right now. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, we're talking like sort of 30, 40 degrees there or something. So what, what happens there is you're at an angle of attack to the forward coming air and what happens now is the air is is at a certain angle of the wings it, it stalls basically the airflow can't go over the wings smoothly anymore because it has to go over the top of it to, in order to provide lift but of course if i do that then there's obviously exaggerating 90 degrees there's no air at all over the top of the wing it's just hitting the you know so so what happens is because there's now no the angle's too steep so the air can't flow smoothly over the top of the wing the only way to recover a stall is by reducing the angle of attack. And so you lower the nose. So what happens instantly, as you can see, coming down through sort of 20 degrees, 15 degrees, level flight. Sometimes you might even go below the horizon. You know, so you can see now that there's airflow back of the wings. It provides lift. And then, of course, you fly away. So we used to practice that when we used to do our basic licenses. And that's when the only time. So when you came onto airliners, it's not something that you, you practice anymore because it was a skill that you you learned. And of course, airliners didn't stall, you know. But then the, what came to light in, um, I forget, the the, the Air France aeroplane yeah. that um, came back from, from uh, Brazil, I think it was, over the Atlantic. Now, I won't go into, there were systems that failed on that aeroplane and stuff, but what came to light about that 
was after that incident, instantly in our assessments every six months was introduced what's called UPRT, Upset Pilot Recovery Technique. And uh, it, it literally is that. We, we now fully practice getting into stalling, unusual attitudes, anything. I mean, we get into attitudes like, like this, you know, you know, 90 degrees over, 110 degrees over, and, and, and we get into all sorts of scenarios that we've put into in the simulator, and we have to recover. Oh, that's good. And uh, obviously, yeah, it is. So it's it's one of the things that was accepted that you knew how to do as a pilot, but yeah. wasn't regularly tested. But now yeah. it is. It's Still needs practice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's and good. again, to get into it, what caused that aeroplane to get into that system wasn't wasn't the aeroplane just going into a storm that there were, but there were there were some technical faults in the aeroplane that allowed it to tell the pilots that it was doing something against their uh, yeah. But there we okay. go. Thank you. Yeah, so I guess we're time's marching on, isn't it, Paul? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get through all my questions. Go on, go on, <laughs> let's see, let's see what we can do. Get, give it, give it, see, see what you can do in 10 minutes. <laughs> okay, so, well, I just had like a couple of little questions about air traffic control, and then I just had a couple of general ones at the end. Of, like, sure. yeah. Everyone loves Captain Steve. <laughs> <laughs> what have I got here? I wondered, um, does all all communication with air traffic control happen in English? So, and if it does, does every pilot have to have like a decent level of English? Because if they were misunderstood, that could be quite a problem. Brilliant question. Yeah, absolutely. No, very good. Yes, luckily for, for us English speaking um, yeah, people. you don't have to learn loads of languages. I know, I know. I feel sorry for all the, uh, the people from the, the, not English speaking because they, yeah. The international language of, of the air is, is absolutely English. And it doesn't matter where you are, China, Russia, the depths of the air, um, everybody has to speak English. And brilliant question because, yes, they have to, certain airlines require a certain level of, and in the, the UK, it's um, levels one to six, and you have to have level six uh, proficiency in, in English too in order to communicate. So, no, really good question. Yeah, yeah. So, and uh, what what would happen if communication was lost with an aircraft? What would they do? We we have procedures in in place. So, um, we we carry uh, what's called an en route charts, and uh, just like good old fashioned maps on your on your uh, well, not even on on a computer now. You have google maps and everything like that so all our airways and everything that we fly down are all now on a computer ipad basically but we also have paper ones as backup as well and uh, there are procedures in and different countries have different procedures on what's called loss of communication but we also have airfield charts so if we're landing into new york we have lots and lots of charts of the airfield for how you taxi how you do departures off different runways arrivals onto different runways low visibility procedures, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things is loss of communication. So if for some reason, all the redundancy, you know, we have three radios, if one fails, the next one, next one, next one. But then after that, we have we have satellite phones now. So okay. to lose total communication, yeah, I mean, these things didn't exist years ago. Again, when I first started, they, they, we've always had what's called HF radio, long, long range radio, I mean, just crackling. And those poor radio operators years ago, the one you had to sit there with their heads at, Mm. it must be unbearable for 10 hours but luckily i mean if all that failed if it did again it's not going to but now we have satellite phones so we just pick up the phone you know and just dial into the air traffic controls and so 
I, I guess you would just then try to land as quickly as possible. And yeah, there's sort of set procedures, you they know. can always like close airspace and stuff like that. It, oh, totally. They'll see, you know, if it, and especially now because of what happened in, in 9-11, you know, if you were to lose communication, it wouldn't be long. I mean, I'm talking a matter of minutes before fighter jets would be up alongside you. And then we we have a way of communicating with, so they'll, they have a way of intercepting you and they give you a warning and you have to respond because if you don't have a radio, then it's, it's all, all things like rocking the wings and flashing the lights. And there's, there's a procedure that you do, but you, you won't be alone if, if it ever happened. But to be honest, I don't, I, I can't think of any incident in, in recent, I mean, I'm talking the last 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know that that's ever happened. So. Cool. I was good, just going to yeah, finish with a couple of general things just just about you, really. So what what is <laughs> what is your favourite route in terms of, like, scenery and stuff? And what is your favourite airport to fly into and why? Oh, good one. Well, my, yeah, uh, I'm a huge fan of the Far East. I love the, uh, you know, because you, you get to see some incredible mountain scenery and, I mean, any mountains, and you know, the Rockies in America is it's just Georgia. Greenland is just yeah. fascinating. And the, but going down to the Far East, you know, you obviously get the, the Himalayan mountain. I mean, it's just mm. huge and this great, fascinating runways like Hong Kong. You know, there's it's oh, yeah. reclaimed land. There's a stretch of you know massive tarmac in the middle of the water and stuff like that. So prettiest places to fly. San Francisco is is one of the most loveliest approaches you know you come down over Napa Valley you know and uh, you fly over the bridge at 11,000 feet because I like to tell the passengers what's going so you know everybody on the left hand side that's a really pretty place to fly to. Las Vegas is a really um, that's quite bizarre you know you, it's absolutely nothing and all of a sudden that the, <laughs> must have been like the man on horseback years ago will stop here mm. sort of thing and out of the blue you see these huge mountains in the in the backdrop and then the city there that's quite exciting. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. You know, it is nice. My favorite destination in the whole world is home. So yeah. land <laughs> is landing back in there. And that's that's the human side of it. And I yeah, I'm sure there's lots of parts of the same, but um, you know, when when we talk about, you know, you wouldn't do this job if it if it wasn't safe and uh, but my favorite destination is home because I love coming home so and I wouldn't wouldn't jeopardize that for, for anything. So it's always really nice when you say that because it's like, oh. yeah, no, it is <laughs> it's like you don't so even good. think about it. And you're like, oh, yeah, of course. They no, exactly. Lives. <laughs> exactly. Although, and, and I have to say, uh, you know, that I, I, I've never really thought about it actually because um, it's quite blase because London Heathrow is your base and you come in over one of the, well, the most famous city in the world, London. And of course, the passenger, I, I forget that because yeah. it's I'm really so beautiful landing that. over London, isn't it? Exactly, and over the river, and course, but I can identify. I mean, um, you know, it's it's bad. It's like a plane spotter's dream. I can spot every football stadium in London. I can, you know, where the palace is, what all the bridges are, and that. But of course, that's your home base, and it, uh, it's a terrible thing to say that you get blasé because it, actually, I find it really boring coming into London <laughs> because it's because it's it's so slick, and then it's just a, a you know the operation and the air traffic controllers is just great. But of course, actually, London actually should be on on the list of being. Yeah, but it's a bonus that it's your home base. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is kind of random, but have you ever had any celebrities on your flights? <laughs> I have. <laughs> Are you allowed to say? That? Uh, uh, yeah, no, actually, oh, shit. Um, this is you'll laugh at this. So this is a boy in short pants dream for me, and a and a. And I, I say that. <laughs> Can I say that? Can I leave? Is that there? Yeah. 
yeah. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not celebrity starter, but uh, yeah, uh, loads. Of, oh, gosh, where do I begin? I don't know. I've had lots of yeah, all the all the big celebrities that you know, lots of the crew get really excited about them. But no, this is made another shed. So my best ever experience of a celebrity. So it shows my age now. I'm 55. So when I was younger, there was a a program on TV. Well, there was the Barnick Man. I don't remember that. It's you're, you're too young. Steve Austin, and there was, but there was another, being a boy, there was a program called The Barnick Woman, and that was a lady called Lindsay Wagner. Now, growing up as a teenager, you know, hormones coming out of your eyeballs, and so she was my absolute idol. She was just like, I, you know, couldn't get enough of watching her on a Thursday night, whatever it was, but I also had a a, a, a picture of her on my wall, you know. It's <laughs> scary now, Lindsay. to be honest. I know, it's very scary, you know, to, you know and... Uh, I won't go into these, but anyway, the big poster on my wall. So anyway, fast forward about, oh God, I don't know. I, was, I hadn't been in the airline long, Virgin, but um, it's probably when I was in my 30s. And um, and this shows you your age because some crew came up. And this was obviously before 9-11. And some cabin crew came up and said, uh, oh, someone wants to come and see the flight deck, which was a, a, an unusual question. Yeah, And you always say, you know, who are they? You know, so blah, blah, blah. And... I'll never forget, and this, this young girl in the cabin just said, uh, oh, I don't know, she, she's actually, she's down as a, a VIP, she's a celebrity. She said, she's called, she's called Lindsay Wagner, the Barnet woman, and my jaw just hit the floor, and I just thought all my Christmases had come at once, and I went, you're kidding. <laughs> and, of course, she had, she said, who the hell's Lindsay, the Barnet woman? You know, what sort of, you know. And, it, and she was coming over to do the Graham Norton show. She was, you know, being uh, obviously on his, his couch for one of the shows. Goodness knows why. I mean, then she was now in her fifties, obviously. Well, needless to say, bring her in the music. And I just remember when she came into the flight, and this she hadn't changed except she was now fifty, and she she had sort of glasses, and she still had her long, you know, blonde red hair. And I was just beside myself. And she she came and she was so lovely. She said, "Hi, I'm Lindsay." And I just said, "Oh, I'm Steve." Well, and I just, <laughs> and she was so interested in the. In the flight, it was on the jumbo as well, you know. So it was, you know, and we were flying, and I just remember we were flying over Fargo at the time in North Dakota, which there was a film, you know. And she said, Oh, where are we now? And I'm going, Never mind that shit, you know. I go, Let's talk about you and me. <laughs> anyway, so we were talking about Fargo, and then she, she did the accents of the film, and then yeah, so that was the only time that I was, uh, you were I, starstruck. I, yeah, I, totally. That's but a great I, one. I was, in, I was in love as well, and like, but I couldn't tell her, you know, it was, um, yeah. I mean, also with the restraint order that came afterwards, <laughs> yeah. things got a bit I was, awkward. I was actually banned from having flight deck visits off that because, yeah, <laughs> but I, I didn't get her number, and her agent was with her. Well. I thought maybe I'll ask the agent. Is that but anyway, no, I did. I didn't. That's funny. That is funny. Oh, that's a good one. Well, I, I do have some. I have some really good friends who have had, you know, some really big celebrities. Or you know, from all your Brad Pitts and, and, uh, but one of, and I'll share this very quickly because I still think it is the best story I've ever had. So a really good friend of mine who I did lots of training with, he's retired now, a guy called Dave Payne. If you're listening, Dave, you're famous. He had, Buzz Aldrin asked to come up and, and see the flight mm. there, uh, and they were going to, um, I think they were going to LA or something. And Dave was an absolute space nut. He, he loved everything to do with space. And he was a young man in, in uh, 1969 when Buzz and Neil Armstrong obviously stepped in and he was, you know, listening to the radio like everyone else. And anyway, his boyhood dream, Buzz Aldrin, can he come and see wow. the flight? <laughs> and Dave, 
And apparently Dave was even worse than I was with, with Lindsay Wagner. And uh, I mean, completely, and Buzz was like going, whoa, you know, and, and Dave's like six foot six. He's a real big gang, you know, huge guy. And apparently Dave just, he couldn't help it. And he just probably spurted like thousands of people do to Buzz Aldrin, told him that they were there with him. <laughs> but Dave did this. <laughs> and Buzz was not interested in space travel. He was so interested in the 747. And I thought, you know, and, and Dave's going, never mind that. Stop talking about aeroplane. Let's talk about you. And the, and, the, and he said to Buzz, he said, I was there, Buzz. I was with you when you, you know, and you were communicating. Apparently there was this, and I'm sure he's done it, but there's this beautiful pause. And he said, Dave, had I known that, it would have made it even more special for me. <laughs> they went, oh, that's just him telling me I'm a complete and utter. <laughs> anyway. The best thing is he signed his license, which I think is, uh, you know, you talk about an autograph under, but yeah. Dave's flying license is signed by Buzz, which I think is actually pretty That's pretty really special. cool. That's very cool. It is cool, isn't it? I should have got Lindsay to sign my license, but anyway. <laughs> yes, but then she's probably a bit terrified, to be honest, by then. <laughs> Lindsay, if you're Backing away, backing away. Yeah. <laughs> right. Anyway. Oh, man, that was, that was amazing, Melissa. There were some great questions one, there. Can I just ask one last thing, which is from my nine? My nine-year-old son wants me to ask this. Oh, this um, is cute. Go on. He wants to know, where does all the wee and poo go from all of the toilets <laughs> on board? Is it stored somewhere? And what if they get full? <laughs> that happens. So first of all, when I was your son's age, I believe like everyone else that when you flushed it, they used to talk yeah. about it, didn't they? It was coming out in the sky and big frozen poos would land on your garden. And, and, <laughs> and yes, yeah, sadly, it does go into big tanks in the uh, in the belly of the aeroplane there is actually a job and um, we call them the honey truck drivers on, on the airport and they they come in and plug into the airplane and have to suck it all out but but it answers you to the question it has happened where they actually have got full and, and exactly what happens is i mean there's gosh how many there's loads of toilets on the certainly there's probably 10 or 12 toilets but you know there have been this is real one by one start to get you have to block them off you know because they can't yeah. be used anymore but uh, but <laughs> if, put it this way it won't come spilling out of the top and then back in the air it's not gonna fall on his head when he's outside <laughs> <laughs> luckily he's sitting on top of it so as long as his chair doesn't collapse he's not gonna go into it really good i don't think we've been asked that that's a really good question that oh, is funny it, it is <laughs> um, but it's a very clever system of computers and they are computerized as well yeah. um, it's quite a shocking sound there when you flush a toilet in the airplane because sometimes oh, yeah. there's a uh, there's a pause and then all of a sudden all hell and it's this massive vacuum and yeah. what that is i've always hated it <laughs> you think you're I gonna know, get sucked out of the plane well years ago it was just a normal flush you know and the blue rinses but now it's exactly and everyone thinks there's a hole in the airplane you're just about to be sucked, and it, it's an incredible noise and yeah. what it is it's a very clever system of pipes and and it's a computerized thing and it wait you'll laugh it, it waits to see that the the pipe is free and no one else has flushed the toilet and, and if there's a pause it means someone else has flushed on it and that's when you have this pregnant pause and then all of a sudden and it scares <laughs> living daylight but anyway but yes safely into the belly of the airplane it doesn't land on anyone's garden or lovely or, <laughs> i'll be pleased to know that that's okay yeah. Well, that's a lovely you one wash- to finish one as well. <laughs> yeah. If you put your washing out today, it should be safe. Yeah. Oh, man. Melissa, <laughs> great right. questions. Steve, thank you as always. You can see why you're the Facebook favourite. Uh, <laughs> absolute pleasure. I really enjoy- and Steve's Melissa not on Br- Facebook because he, he can't, it just go, he doesn't like all the adoration. So he just, he, <laughs> I have to pass it on when they mention it. He, he doesn't want to know, you know, he's like a, I guess, yeah, too too humble. 
Yeah, but that was great. Thank you so much for that. I really yeah. appreciate it. And any time, just keep the question, you know, because I know you'll be part of the, the whole um, thing. But let us know on your next on your next journey. It's great that you're doing all these flights on it, but yeah. let us know when I'm going to uh, I'm going back to Canada in August. So I haven't oh. been for six years. So yeah, I'm really another, excited to go back. Another beautiful part when I when we fly over, you know, into America, we didn't mm. we didn't fly, but yeah, the, the, the landscape of the Canada yeah. is stunning. Yeah, stunning yeah. place, yeah. It is really good. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, how, I'll let you know yes. how I get on with my 787 travels. <laughs> oh, yeah. Please do share that with us. That'd be great. <laughs> Melissa, yeah. thank you very much. Really appreciate thank it. You, Captain thank Steve, you. brilliant. And uh, I'll just stop the recording now. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Love Fly podcast. I hope you found it useful. Now, as always, if you need any extra help, please join our Love Fly Facebook group. You can also follow us on Instagram at Love Fly Help. And also, if you go to our website, which is lovefly.co.uk forward slash shop, you can see other ways that you can get some help. Thanks for listening.